At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients and we're caregivers. We're executives and advocates who are fed up with the status quo, and we have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Now, I got to apologize for the gravelly tone of my voice here. I am coming off a bit of a bout of laryngitis. Thank you, daycare, and thank you, toddlers. But today, we wanted to dive into kind of the myths of what medical malpractice insurance is. You know, uh, some people call it professional liability insurance, why it exists, what we need it to do, what doctors need it to do, and then how we can play nice with insurance uh, in this form. And the attorneys out there, um, there's old sayings and old rivalries between physicians and attorneys, and neither one of them like being in the same room with one another, but each one has its uses. For this conversation, we're talking to Jennifer Wiggins, the CEO of Aegis Malpractice Solutions, who is also a member of the Outstanding Free Market Medical Association. Jennifer, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now, I, I, I didn't want to paint this in too bad of a light from why physicians need medical malpractice insurance, because most physicians out there are saying to themselves, well, Chris, I've never made a mistake in my life. It's always my patient's fault when things go wrong or I get a mean letter in the, in the mail. Give us a little insight into the world of medical malpractice insurance and really why it's a thing. Yeah. So it really all kind of comes back to the high-level overview of what even is it. So what is medical malpractice? What is professional negligence by a healthcare provider? So, you know, the, the true definition of medical malpractice is, you know, professional negligence by a healthcare provider that deviates from the standard of care, which results in harm. And so what is that measuring stick that, you know, attorneys are using to determine if a doctor has committed malpractice or has not? The measuring stick is standard of care. So standard of care is what a, another doctor, same specialty, same circumstances would have done in the same situation. So no doctor is held to a standard of perfection. Nobody is perfect and nobody is expecting physicians or surgeons to be perfect. But what we are expecting is for them to do what another reasonably qualified provider would have done if they were in the same situation. So when it comes to malpractice, that is the measuring stick of how a court of law would determine if a doctor has been found guilty of malpractice or not. So that's kind of the general overview of it. And so obviously doctors then need to take the necessary precautions to protect themselves. And so, you know, malpractice insurance is kind of that necessary evil. You have to have it in most situations in order to get hospital privileges, um, obviously in order to make sure that you can get credentialed at the various places that you want to work. 
But, you know, more so than that, obviously, it's just for your own personal protection. So this is the insurance policy that's going to give you, obviously, the financial backing. So if you have a loss against you, this insurance policy would pay for any losses. But it also then provides you with the defense, covers all your attorney fees, court fees, filing fees. You know, if your license gets questioned and you have to show up in front of a licensing board for a malpractice-related matter, your insurance policy will cover you for that. So it's really this um, kind of just general protection of your livelihood as a healthcare provider to give you the, you know, peace of mind so that you can stay focused on doing what you do best, which is to deliver quality healthcare. From a legal standpoint, the malpractice policies change. Each state has something a little bit different. Some states pool the risk together, others are kind of on their own. What do you see as being kind of an effective way or is there anybody who you can shine a light to and say, you know what, this state really got it right. This is a way to do it that protects both the physicians trying to make life-saving decisions, sometimes within split seconds, and will preserve you know the rights of the patient to say, you know what, like you said uh, just a couple of minutes ago, Some things were wrong here. Some things just – it was more of a judgment error rather than kind of a natural reasoning for things going wrong. So are there there any shining examples out there that you would point to and say this is the way that everybody else should be doing it? Yeah. You know, there's really no gold standard, but there are some states that have taken really good steps forward as it relates to creating a safe environment for patients to be living and working, but also a place where doctors can practice with confidence so that they're not always doing the CYA, right? They're not always trying to prescribe more tests than might be necessary to try to cover their behind so that they don't accidentally get named in something because they didn't do their due diligence. And so the states that really, I think, have taken some steps forward as it relates to malpractice are the ones that have passed meaningful tort reform. And so tort reform, obviously, is to mitigate unnecessary lawsuits because, you know, there's been quite a period of time in our history where doctors would just get named all the time for no good reason because, quite frankly, it was easy to sue them. And so the states that have taken some meaningful steps forward forward to pass tort reform laws, legislators that are really trying to uphold laws that will mitigate frivolous claims. Those are the areas where it's generally easier to practice medicine. It's safer to practice medicine. It's also the states where the malpractice premiums are generally lower. Now, our state, Chris, you and I are here in Indiana. Indiana happens to be one of the best states in the country to practice medicine in. And that is because we actually have a malpractice cap here in Indiana. So if you practice in the state of Indiana and you are enrolled in the Indiana Patient Compensation Fund, any malpractice loss against you is capped at $1.8 million. So no matter how bad the loss, that is the most that a patient can recover in the state of Indiana. And so for that reason, there are actually a lot of doctors in the surrounding states, you know, doctors who practice and live in Chicago, but they'll practice in Indiana because the Indiana laws are so much better and safer, keeps their premiums lower. And so there's, we see a lot of doctors who actually live out of state that will practice it here in Indiana so that they can benefit from those types of things. So Indiana is one of the few. Texas has passed some good tort reform. There's a handful of other states that have done a nice job. But that's really what we're looking for in terms of determining which states are the gold standard or are doing a nice job uh, in being the advocates for our healthcare providers. Is there a stigma that you find that when a physician is faced with a potential lawsuit or a letter saying, hey, you're going to be named in this lawsuit. Is that wounded pride? Is there a stigma that's like, oh my gosh, some patient who I've been treating for years and years and years sued me. I don't know why they would do that. Because to me, it, it seems like most physicians would really internalize that and kind of beat themselves up. Is that what you see in the market that 
you know, these things are few and far between and, and physicians tend to really personalize them? Well, two points. Number one, are they few and far between? You know, the unfortunate answer to that is it's relatively common for a doctor to get sued. And, you know, the two main drivers when it comes to what makes doctors more likely to get sued for malpractice is their specialty and geographically, where do they live? We already talked a little bit about geographically what that means. So obviously more litigious areas, you're more likely to get sued in certain areas than you would be more rural areas. So metropolitan areas, major cities, generally the premiums are higher in those areas because they're more litigious. The jurisdictions are generally a little bit more patient-centered instead of doctor-centered. And so if you're practicing in, say, Chicago or Manhattan or Miami or Los Angeles, Las Vegas, any of those big major hubs, generally premiums are a little bit higher because doctors are more likely to get sued if they practice there. Specialty is the other big driver. So surgeons obviously are a higher risk than, say, an allergy doctor or a primary care provider. So you also have that spectrum of specialty risk. So you know, if you're a surgeon, you're more likely to get sued than if you're not. Um, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, regardless of your specialty, more than half of all physicians and surgeons will be sued at least one time in their career. So is it a blow to your ego? Certainly. I mean, it can be a huge hit to you emotionally because you take it so personally, right? Like this is what you do. You're here to help. And now somebody is saying, not only did you not help, but you hurt me. You know, that's a huge hit to your ego and can be very emotionally distressing. But I think for physicians and surgeons to realize that it happens, I mean, it just happens. And you can't take it quite so personally because you just have to realize the nature of healthcare is that, you know, patients are gonna question whether or not you did the right thing. And you've got a lot of plaintiff attorneys that are more than happy to take those cases to see if they're legitimate, to see if there's actually some loss that they can recover for them there. So, you know, it's fairly likely if you're a surgeon, 80 to 90% of surgeons will be sued at least once. If you're a primary care provider, 40 to 50% of those guys will be sued at least once in their career. And just because you're sued doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. And quite frankly, doesn't even necessarily mean that you're going to have any losses paid out against you. Because there are a lot of instances where doctors get swept up in a group of multiple providers getting named in the same lawsuit just because they saw the patient one time and they get named, but then usually they get dismissed once the facts of the case start to be brought to light. And that was kind of my next question there was, you know, any difference in rates of being sued or claims of employed physicians versus those who are independent? Because like you said, to me, it was like, well, if you're swept up in a group of people or, you know, you're a hospitalist and you're making rounds and you see somebody, you have no idea who this person is, but you just checked on them in the morning. Then all of a sudden your name gets slapped to the paper. It's not funny, but you kind of chuckle about it. Like, how in the world is that fair? How does, how does somebody get brought into that? So is there any real difference between employed and, and kind of the vanishing art of independent medicine? You know, I would say the thing that we really see that's the differentiator there is not necessarily do they get sued more, although I would make the argument that you may be more likely to be sued if you're in a hospital or a network setting simply because it's more of a team structure. So if you saw the patient once or had any involvement in their care, you will probably get named in the suit just because that's generally the way they do it. It's a broad sweeping action against any provider that touched them, saw them, spoke to them, as well as the institution that gets sued. So, you know, I'd say they're probably a little bit more likely if they're hospital employed versus if they're independent. But the other big driver that we really see as it relates to the difference between independent practitioners and hospital employed practitioners is when it comes to the settlement of lawsuits. So, you know, if you're employed by a hospital or a network, 
Your malpractice insurance is generally paid for by the institution. So if you work for ABC Health Network, ABC Health Network, the majority of the time, is going to be a self-insured institution. They actually don't even buy malpractice in the open market. They're a large enough organization that they're self-insured. So what happens then is if you get named in a lawsuit as a hospital employee, the hospital might be a little more likely to want to get out of that claim as quickly as possible, as quietly as possible, and for as little amount of money as possible. So what we do see is for hospital-employed physicians, sometimes a hospital will settle a claim on their behalf, even if they've never done anything wrong and don't believe they've done anything wrong because the hospital wants it to go away. They don't want their name on the front page of the newspaper. They don't want the huge lawsuit. You know, think about it. A hospital has, you know, deep pockets. So if they can assess the liability and, and you know, this doctor has $100,000 on him and this doctor is going to have a $200,000 loss on him and this nurse is going to have a $50,000 loss on them, they're, they're shifting the risk to their providers so that the hospital itself isn't as exposed as it would be normally. So that's really the big difference that we see is oftentimes those providers get hit with suits and lose control and then have a lawsuit on their record that they may not have had otherwise. Whereas an independent practitioner obviously has a little more control and usually has a consent to settle provision in their policy so that they can dictate to the carrier whether or not they want a claim to be settled on their behalf. So what's your advice to somebody who's listening who says... Holy cow, I didn't even know that the hospital could do that, could go out there and settle my behalf. Is there anything that any recourse that they have to potentially prevent that or to fight that or keep that from happening? You are somewhat limited, obviously, because you are an employee. And so the your employer is going to have the majority of the control. But the one thing that we have seen that does make a difference is for physicians to request their own individual counsel. So instead of there being, you know, one defense attorney that represents all 20 parties in a case, if you feel like your interests are not being served, you should go to the hospital and say, I'd like to have my own individual defense attorney, please. Because that way you can make sure that there is one person looking specifically out for your individual interests. Now, I'm not going to promise you that they will let you do that, but it is certainly something that I would ask if you feel like you're just getting swept up with the group and that you're not having an advocate um, specifically speaking up for you. Are there, in your mind, good policies versus bad policies? I know we're getting a little bit in the weeds here, but I think that's important for people to hear that when they sign an employee contract and they're looking at, okay, this is going to be my policy here, or I want to go out and get my own, what are some key things they should be looking for? I think it starts first and foremost with understanding the two different types of malpractice insurance that you can buy. And I will tell you, you know, the majority of healthcare providers, this is the most confusing part about medical malpractice insurance is what's the difference between an occurrence policy and a claims made policy. Usually they know enough to be dangerous, but not really enough to be able to make an educated decision on which type of coverage is right for them. So if you are in the open market, you're buying your own malpractice insurance, or if you are an employed physician and you just want to carry a supplemental malpractice policy for some work that you want to do on the side, it's important that you understand the difference between those two things. So I'll give you the quick crash course difference, and then we can talk about other nuances that might be important for them to consider. So the basic difference between the two different policy types is how the insurance triggers. So if you buy an occurrence-based malpractice insurance policy, your insurance triggers based upon when the incident actually occurred. 
So if you're a healthcare provider and you treated a patient on May 1st, 2022, and then a claim is filed, let's say two years later, for that particular incident, as long as you were insured at the time that the incident occurred, then you're covered for that event regardless of when the claim is eventually filed against you. So an occurrence-based malpractice policy is a little bit more flexible insurance. So basically, you only need to carry it while you're practicing. When you're done practicing, you can simply cancel the policy and walk away. You don't have to do anything further. Those occurrence policies will stay active with the carrier that you purchased them from. So if, heaven forbid, there's a claim filed later on, as long as the incident occurred during the time in which you were insured on the occurrence policy, that will be the policy that activates to cover you. So there's no tail insurance on an occurrence policy. It's a standalone policy that you buy only as you need and you terminate it when you're finished. The other kind of insurance that you can buy is a claims-made insurance policy. And this one triggers the opposite way. So a claims-made insurance policy triggers based on when the claim is actually made against you. So you have to be insured, obviously, while you're practicing, just in case a claim gets made while you're still actively in practice. But obviously, then after you're finished working, you have to secure a second policy. And that is the elusive tail insurance that many doctors have heard their colleagues complain about. So the tail insurance is essentially a policy that starts on the cancellation date of their insurance, and then it extends their protection into the future in case any claim is made against them two, three, four, five years down the road for patients that they treated during the years when they were previously insured. So a claims-made policy is really two policies in one. You've got to carry it while you work, and then you've got to buy your tail at the end. So I think it's really important that providers understand the difference between those two policy types and obviously then to understand the pricing differences because there is occurrence is more expensive, claims-made is less expensive. But there are lots of other nuances related to that that I think are important for healthcare providers to know so that when they get a quote, they understand what it is that's being given to them. So beyond the policy type differences, I also think it's important for healthcare providers to know, do they have consent to settle, which we just talked about previously. It's important that doctors make sure they have a policy that gives them consent. I think it's also important that you understand just the other general features and benefits of each carrier. So, you know, some carriers are mutual insurance companies, so doctors can earn dividends and get other benefits of being affiliated with a mutual company. Carriers all offer various risk management resources to help them educate themselves and help mitigate risk within their practice. So, you know, as you're looking at options, obviously you want to look at the different policy types, you want to look at the differences in premiums, but you also want to look at what other value is this carrier bringing to me so that I can practice good medicine, reduce risk, and make sure I'm covered appropriately without overpaying. We're talking to Jennifer Wiggins, the CEO of Aegis Malpractice Solutions. Jennifer, earlier in the episode, you mentioned this CYA mindset. And, you know, from my side, with Freedom Health Works, being in the direct care space, it feels like that is a burden that no longer applies to a lot of physicians. What kind of impact do you see, you know, really on medical decisions that physicians are making just because they don't have the whole picture and they want to make sure that they maybe over-prescribe or over-refer patients so that they don't miss anything and then have a lawsuit come back on them. 
I mean, it is a really interesting element of healthcare, and then I think it's why the direct primary care model is so appealing to malpractice carriers as well, because I actually think that DPC is actually a lower risk specialty for the reason you just described. So not only do we have less of the CYA mentality where you're trying to refer out patients and you're really making sure, I don't really think I need to order this, but I'm going to order it just to make sure I don't you know, miss something. Because the direct primary care model is much more patient relationship based, you understand the patient, it's a more holistic approach to medicine, there's less of a need for that. And actually in response then, I think it's a much lower risk from a malpractice perspective. So you could make the argument that direct primary care is a better risk than the opposite because of the fact that they have a smaller group of patient base They're spending more time with each visit. It's a quality visit. You're getting to know the patient. You're getting to know all aspects of their life. And therefore, you're less likely to be sued. Would you say that uh, we hear the word time a lot? Is there a correlation between how much time a physician spends with a patient? You know, it's kind of building on your previous point right there that they can actually get to know somebody. And I don't think any physician out there is happy that they only get to spend seven minutes with a patient. And then here's a bunch of things that could be wrong with you. Go take these tests and then call me in three weeks. So I want to dive really into that relationship side of it, because it seems like there's so many other things that are a little bit more intangible that build out of that. When you spend time with with a physician, I mean, it's trust, right? Is, Is your first call something goes wrong? Is your first call to the physician to try to fix it? Or is it to your attorney when you have a relationship like that? Well, it's interesting that you say that because it's a direct parallel to the number one thing that we tell providers, the one lever that they can pull to try to reduce risk in their practice. And we always tell doctors that the number one thing that you can control is bedside manner and your relationship with your patients. And with what you're describing, that is already built into the model. So, you know, there is data that shows that, for example, when a physician walks into a room, if they sit down next to their patient and show them that they're slowing down, they're taking their time, they're listening, they're not checking their watch, they're not checking their phone or their pager, they're not you know, face on a screen typing away instead of really engaging and listening and understand the true issue at hand, those patients know, like, and trust their providers. And that relationship is so significant that we've actually seen instances where, you know, maybe there was a little bit of malpractice, but the patient doesn't even sue the provider because they have such a strong relationship with them. They trust them. They know they have their best interest at heart. That actually is one of the main reasons why those providers don't get sued. So, you know, some of the specialties that unfortunately have a harder time with that are the ones that don't have that relationship as much. So, you know, your hospitalists, your urgent care providers, radiologists, pathologists that don't have that face-to-face, that interaction, they can't build the bedside manner, they can't build the rapport that really can help mitigate claims. And so for DPC, that's a huge advantage. And that's, again, why I think that they are a better risk than most. Now, direct primary care, and by extension, you know, direct specialty care, direct surgery care, it's been around for a while. It's not exactly like this is the new chicken on the truck or new cabbage on the truck. My, my proverbs are all screwed up right now. So why is this such a refreshing conversation with you, Jennifer, of somebody finally in the in medical malpractice insurance saying, hey, you know what? You don't need this massive policy because we're actually looking at numbers here and saying, well, this is – I don't dare say the word better, but this is a less risky way to practice medicine. Why now? Malpractice carriers are very traditional, very conservative when it comes to moving the needle 
in terms of reducing a rate or shifting a policy type option, they want to see a track record, right? So you're talking about in, in insurance, one of the big pillars is actuarial data, actuarial evidence. And that's how they make sure they've got enough money in reserves to pay for future claims because they're looking at historical data to see what the trends have been in the past. And so I think we're finally to the point with direct primary care where it's been around long enough now that I think we can start seeing some evidence that supports the fact that they are a better than average risk. So if you put them up next to, let's say, a hospital-based primary care provider, I think we finally have enough data to support the fact that they are truly sued less often. And so that really is exciting to me because now we have an opportunity to be able to really kind of carve them out and provide them with a unique specialty designation, maybe a special program credit or a better way to make sure that what they're paying in terms of premium is a better reflection of their true risk. So I think we finally have enough data under our belt that we have a few carriers that are seeing the light in terms of really being able to offer a better solution for those folks. And obviously that means that you're paying less for your insurance. Not to mention the fact that you're providing better care because you're not worried as much about getting sued for malpractice because the data is showing that it's just not happening as often. Jennifer, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Was this always your dream to start your own malpractice uh, business? And did you wake up up as a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old and be like, you know what, I'm going to go out there and I am going to apply data and rational thought and go out there and fix everything that's wrong with the malpractice world? (laughs) No, not at all. But I will say it was an interesting way that everything came about. So when I got to college, I was a business major. And I knew that I wanted to be involved in healthcare in some aspect. In fact, originally, I thought I might want to be an anesthesiologist, but quickly decided that my skill set was better fit in the business world and not in the primary care healthcare world. But I had a passion for healthcare, and I knew I wanted to be involved with it in some aspect. So initially, I thought I wanted to get into the pharmaceutical world. I thought that would be a good and interesting field for me. But after graduating from college, and I didn't get a single callback from over 20 applications I filled out for pharma companies... Uh, I had to make a pivot. And so I actually answered an ad in the paper just to try to build some skill set in the sales world. And I started out by selling Cutco knives. (laughs) And um, I was selling Cutco knives to my parents, my parents' friends, all of the things that I'll... By the way, if anybody ever calls you and tries to sell you Cutco knives, I mean, these kids are hard workers, at least buy something. Um, But anyways, I sold Cutco knives. And one of the ladies that I sold knives to happens to be the wife of an executive at a company called Medical Protective, which is located in my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And after uh, I sold her a set of knives, she said, you probably shouldn't be selling knives. You probably need to be doing something else, a better use of your skills. And so that actually opened the door for me to get a position at MedPro, which is one of the largest malpractice insurance carriers, like I said, happens to be located here in my hometown. But I worked at MedPro for 16 years. And so that was really where I built the majority of my knowledge and all of my understanding kind of of the industry. But my job there was I was a direct sales agent, which meant that my job was to walk into a doctor's office and try to sell them a policy from Medical Protective. And what I discovered was there were really two big gaps in the market. The first gap was a knowledge gap. So doctors really malpractice insurance was still really confusing. They didn't understand the different policy types. They didn't understand how to pick which policy was right for them. There were so many different carriers. They didn't know how to pick which one's the right one for me. How do I know? How do I make sure I'm getting great coverage, but I'm not overpaying? 
So when I discovered both the knowledge gap and the market gap, I thought, you know, this is really what I want to do. So after 16 years with MedPro, I actually resigned my position there and I um, decided to start my own agency. So Aegis Malpractice Solutions was born in the fall of 2018. And so that's all we do now. So we are an independent brokerage. So we work with every single carrier in the marketplace. And our job is to help physicians and surgeons both understand medical malpractice, but also then get access to the market and understand what they're getting. So we can get quotes from everybody in the field, but then work with a physician in understanding their specific practice to be able to help them find the one that's really the right fit for their specific situation. Jennifer Wiggins, CEO of Aegis Malpractice Solutions. One last question for you. As you're talking to a lot of physicians across a lot of different specialties, a lot of different workplace scenarios, is there anything that ties it together that gives you this vision of, wow, this is how we design the perfect healthcare industry. This is how it all functions, and this is how we make everybody happy. You any crystal ball moments like that? Gosh, I don't know that there is a perfect crystal ball moment, but what I do think as it relates to my particular industry, what makes me excited and thinks that there's maybe light at the end of the tunnel is to think that there's a point in which physicians and malpractice carriers and attorneys are working in tandem to find a way where we're providing quality health care that is giving the patients what they need, but we're also not driving up health care costs. So We don't need to ask for all of these additional tests. We don't need to CYA because we know we trust our carriers. We trust our attorneys. We're having adequate time to be able to develop those relationships with our patients to where our patients know us, we know them, and we can provide the best quality care possible. And in return, then, doctors can get malpractice insurance that adequately covers them but isn't gouging them. And it's giving them just enough protection for exactly what they need, but it's helping them to keep costs low so that they can stay focused on doing what they do best. Jennifer, once again, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes, subscribe to our mailing list, and visit our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.